Welcome back to This One's a Doozy. I'm Kevin. And I'm Haley. And we talk about stories of mystery, true crime, and folklore of the unusual, unsettling, and oftentimes unsavory goings-on of our world today, yesterday, and long ago. Mm. Sure that. Yeah. I feel like I, when I say it really fast like that, I wonder if anybody actually listens to hear what I'm saying or if it's just like, wow, he's talking fast. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's just, a that's a great question. I just kind of rattle it off. It's not really an intro anymore. It's just a buffer while the cool music <laughs> finishes up. <laughs> yeah, weigh in, dear listener, on yes. what you what you think. There about you go. That. So this is a special occasion. Oh, this is a very special occasion. You know this. Normally, when we record, oh, we yeah. record in our basement that has no light bulbs in the dark, all alone, mm-hmm. like a bunch of hobbits. Yes. And on this day, we are recording in the daytime and our children are on a fun little homeschool excursion uh-huh. with your mom uh-huh. and it's daytime. It's the day. This is incredible. It is. There's <laughs> light shining through the window I know from the sun, not from a random <laughs> lamppost out, mm-hmm. <laughs> out in the street, street light out in the street. <laughs> we never do this. We always record at late at night. Very strange hours. <laughs> So, so yeah, this are. is this is good. I'm feeling great. Me too. This Me is too. exciting. I love it. Also, because it's daytime, that affects the kinds of drinks. Well, it affects the kinds of drinks that I'm drinking. Yeah, it doesn't say. affect you at all. <laughs> so we might as well ask the question, what are you drinking? I got me a latte. Okay. What kind of latte? It is a, well, it's technically a mocha. It's a white mocha. Oh. Iced. Iced. I don't care if it's two degrees outside. It will be iced. Yes. Um, so yeah, what are you drinking? I'm drinking the classic Starbucks. I don't actually know if this is the dark roast or the pike. Is it pike? Mm -hmm. The old pike, pike's peak roast Mm. that they make. Beautiful. It's uh, it's consistent. Is it my favorite coffee ever? No, but it's consistently the same. Yeah. So there's a comfort there. Yeah. I can be aware of it. Totally. Just black. Yeah. No sugar, no cream. Cause it's. That's my guy. Early enough in the day. Well, I'm about to transition into iced black cold brews. Yeah, yeah. Because I feel like, much like a bear storing fat for winter, <laughs> I do the same thing with my lattes. Like, I need to just drink 800 calories in one sitting. Apparently. Um, but yeah, during this time of year, it feels I feel more refreshed. It feels lighter, because it is. Yeah. And it feels more like what I need is to just have... Right. Less sugar... No sugar. More caffeine. More caffeine. Yes. No dairy, all that kind of stuff. So this is getting really, really, really boring. So. <laughs> yes. This is a peek into our personal lives. That's all it is. Yeah. But with that, why don't you share with us? Uh, you've got a couple things to share with us before we get started. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's the first one? Let's start with a feel good fact. Okay. Feel good fact. Give and it to us. then a little brief announcement. So Mr. Rogers hand wrote a response to every single piece of fan mail that he ever received. What? Everyone. He wrote every person who ever wrote to him. That, first of all, that would take forever. I know. That's amazing. Uh, Because I'm sure he had no shortage of fan mail. He got a lot. Especially in the 90s when you sent physical letters. Yeah. Most of the time. (laughs) I know. Bless him. He was so sweet to his his fans. Yeah. I actually have a a biography about him that I haven't read yet. You should. I should. I I do like Mr. Mr. Rogers a lot. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, he was a great, he was one of the greats. That is a very feel-good fact. Yes. All right. Okay, so announcement. So before we kind of just get into the regular, regularly scheduled programming, mm-hmm. I'm going to announce the recipient of April Giving. Oh, yeah. So as most of our listeners know at this point, giving to causes and organizations who support victims of violent crime and their families is extremely important to us. Mm-hmm. In true crime, it can be an unfortunate part of the deal where the shock and awe of hearing the details of a gruesome crime can overshadow the humanity of those involved in the stories, most importantly, the humanity of the victims and their loved ones. We want to actively work against that. And so members over on Patreon voted and decided that for the month of April, we're going to be giving to Crime Survivors Resource Center. Oh, okay. So their mission statement reads, the mission of Crime Survivors is to provide hope and healing to victims and survivors of crime through advocacy and the support of resources, information, and empowerment from the critical time after a crime occurs through the challenges and successes of surviving and thriving. 
We're super excited to be able to give to crime survivors and want to thank our patrons for allowing us to do so through your monthly subscriptions over on Patreon. So if you want to be part of next month's giving vote, head on over to our Patreon and sign up. And then May giving will be announced sometime in the next week or so. Awesome. Wow. That's really cool. I, not to pat ourselves on the back. No. But I do love that we take the time to do that. Yeah, I really just think it's important. Yeah, I agree. I've I've seen a lot of really great true crime creators that have focused their efforts and their energies, especially some very successful ones Mm -hmm. that have focused heavily financially on supporting organizations just like this one. Yeah. And I think that that is like, if we could do anything meaningful with this hobby of ours, we should should do that. Yeah, I love that. So It makes it feel real. Yeah, join in with us by hopping in on Patreon. And we'll talk more about that at the end of the episode. Yes. And uh, yeah. Thanks, babe. Yeah, no problem. You ready to I'm hear ready. today's story? Yes. Give it to us. All right. So in November of 1961, the Duperalt family traveled from the state of Wisconsin down to Florida to embark on a week-long journey through the sea on a ship known as the Bluebell. When the Bluebell went down and only the captain was believed to have survived, a mystery began to unfold. What happened on the ship? What happened to the family? Shortly after the captain arrived back on land, a tip would come in that he wasn't the only one to survive the sinking of the Bluebell, and what had happened at sea was far more disturbing than anyone could have guessed. This is the story of the Duperalt family and the murders on the Bluebell. Hang on, Kev. This one's a doozy. Wow. So I'm going to just start off right at the beginning with the content warning. This story will discuss the death of children. Oh, um, okay. At, at some point, it's more implied. And at another point, once again, I never go super graphic. Yeah, yeah. For obvious reasons. Um, but it will be a little bit more than implied for sure. a different child. So I know that's a sensitive topic. And if you don't want to hear about that, you can feel free to join us next week. Yeah. Okay. So let's kick this thing off by talking about the Duperalt family. So the father, Arthur Duperalt, was an optometrist who practiced in Green Bay, Wisconsin. During his time serving in the United States Navy, Arthur spent time on the beautiful South Pacific during World War II. This experience awakened a love for the sea in Arthur, and it would become a dream of his to one day sail the sea again with his family. After he was discharged from the military, he earned himself a great reputation with his optometry practice in Green Bay and surrounding towns. Arthur was lovingly nicknamed Doc by his patients (laughs) and friends, and he became a leader in the Wisconsin Optometry Association for his innovation in the field. So he was like, from what I gathered, he was one of the people who really developed contact lenses. Like he was like a, I don't know exactly what, at what point he Mm -hmm. came in with that, but like he was renowned for his experience with that specifically. Yeah. And his people, people all around that area of Wisconsin just loved doc. They love (laughs) doc. Everybody called him doc. He (laughs) responded to it, which is cute. That is cute. He's just a sweet man who just cared about his community. So he and his wife, Jean would go on to have three children together. At the time of today's story, the oldest child, Brian, was 14 years old. The middle child, Terry Joe, was 11. And the youngest, Renee, was seven. The family lived along the 10th green of the Shorewood Country Club outside of Green Bay. Jean Duperalt was a super beautiful and social lady with two very close friends and many more casual friends. She stayed home and took care of the house and the kids, and she kept the house and yard looking immaculate. Hmm. Specifically, Jean was like a wizard gardener. She was so good at it. Wow. Jean also took art lessons and applied all of the skills that she learned in her home. So she was just a really creative lady. Yeah, that's and cool. she found her space in her home. Like that was kind of where she found yeah. her freedom to express herself, which I think is really cool. Yeah, that was really cool. The family loved the outdoors and exploring, so they spent a ton of time together doing all kinds of outdoor activities. Both Jean and Arthur were committed to showing their children as much of the big wide world as they could, and it was this commitment that would lead them to their next idea. As the chilly Wisconsin months were upon them in 1961, Arthur decided that the time had come to take his family out to sea to have an adventure together in the warm sunshine. The initial plan was that the Duperalts would buy their own boat for the adventure. They wanted to spend the entire autumn and like part of the winter at sea. But when they didn't have any luck finding the exact right boat, they decided to charter a boat instead. Hmm. This obviously altered their original plan, so they crafted this one instead. 
They would spend one week together at sea, leaving from Florida, visiting the Bahamas, and they would hire a experienced navigator to take them on their journey. Hmm. So at Fort Lauderdale's Bahia Mar Yacht Basin, the family made contact with 44-year-old Julian Harvey, the captain of the Bluebell, who would live on the yacht with his new wife, Mary Dene, who would also stay on board and work in the kitchen for any contracted journeys at sea. Oh, cool. So he, yeah. he didn't own the boat, mm-hmm. um, but he captained it and his wife would sure. come and be staff, basically. Yeah. Which, you know, that's, I mean, that's kind of a cool deal. With, that would be, I wouldn't be mad about yeah. that. Like if you were just wanting to become a sea captain yeah. and I'm like, sure, I'll cook for everybody. I'll cook for everyone. Yeah. Can, <laughs> you want to take me to the Bahamas? I'll just. I'll just drive us around. I wish everybody could have seen that little yeah. that little boat motion that tells me you're <laughs> definitely why. not prepared to be a sea captain. Not yet. Not Maybe yet. someday. <laughs> so from the get-go, just about everything about Harvey was disarming to the Duperalts. He was handsome, an experienced and well-traveled sailor, and he had a military background just like Arthur. Hmm. The ship was also a pretty impressive one. The Bluebell was a 60-foot catch or a two-masted sailboat. Oh, okay. Yes, and the family was thrilled to be able to sail on the Bluebell together. On the morning of Wednesday, November 8th, 1961, the Bluebell set sail from the Bahia Mar Marina destined for the Bahamas. As soon as the Bluebell left the dark waters of the harbor, the sails filled and the family was off to the beautiful blue waters of the Gulf Stream. The Florida coastline faded in the distance as they looked ahead to the hundreds of islands that make up the Bahamas, as well as the vast open sea. The dreams of exploring the sea and experiencing the beauty of the warm sunshine on open waters was in full bloom right before their eyes, and the whole family was thrilled. Yeah, that would be really cool. Yeah. (laughs) Doc and Jean sat back, basking in the glory of their great adventure, as the children peeked over the side of the bluebell, watching the water as they sailed on. And it was fun. I I read a book for this that I'll talk about later, but there would be like certain fish that would follow the boat and mm-hmm. like they would see dolphins and the kids are just losing their marbles. They're having yeah. so much fun. That would be cool. <laughs> so later on, on the first day, they arrived later than expected to the first point of entry to the islands where they would need to submit all of their paperwork for entry because the Bahamas were governed by Britain at the time. And so oh, because they arrived <laughs> after closing time uh, for them to like get all that submitted, they had to stay on the boat for the night. They couldn't mm. exit and go onto the islands. So that was their plan for the night. And then in the morning, they would file the paperwork and kind of just keep trucking. Yeah. After all of that was squared away, they had full access to every single island in the area. And there's like 700 islands in the Bahamas. There's a lot. The kids got to experience fish jumping in the streams, seagulls flying overhead, hunting for seashells on sandy beaches. And it was settled. They would absolutely find a boat of their own so that they could make this journey every single year and for longer stretches of time because the whole family just loved every second of it. Hmm. And they all felt, you know, you know, when you I don't know if you felt this as a kid, but like you and your family find something that everybody loves and it's now your thing as a family. That's the best. And this was that for them. (laughs) So on Sunday night, the family, along with a young fisherman whom they'd met earlier that day, were all aboard the Bluebell enjoying a meal together, unaware that this would be the last meal on the Bluebell ever. Oh, man. That's ominous. Yeah, sorry. (laughs) Sorry about it. (laughs) By all accounts, everyone was happy, enjoying each other's company and lively conversation over good food and drinks. The following morning, Monday, November 13th, an oil tanker known as the Gulf Lion was on the way to Puerto Rico when they discovered a dinghy floating in the open water. As the Gulf Lion edged closer, the crew noticed someone was on the dinghy waving their arms wildly. Oh, wow. When they got close enough for conversation, they saw a man who introduced himself as Julian Harvey, and he informed the crew that he had also had the body of a child on board a body who he initially misidentified as Terry Joe Duperalt, but would later be identified as seven-year-old Renee Duperalt. Yeah, which is really sad. Harvey told the crew about the horrible accident that had taken place the night before. He told them that a squall had blown in out of nowhere, which is like a very sudden, violent wind at sea, and that can come with rain and ice and that kind of stuff. And it's very, very sudden. Yeah. So when that came in, it demasted the bluebell, which sent the pole that the mast was on down through the ship, which pierced a hole into the hull of the ship. Yeah. The damage was so swift and so massive that the gas lines ruptured and set the whole boat ablaze as it slowly sank. 
He said that most of the passengers were injured beyond help in the incident, and so he detached the dinghy and jumped in while everyone else remained trapped on board. After the boat had sank, he'd managed to find the body of Renee, but it was too late to help her, and everyone else was unaccounted for. After hearing such a horrible story, the captain of the Gulf Lion and his crew treated Harvey for minor shock symptoms while the captain called the Coast Guard, who quickly launched a search for the missing passengers. But due to some weird technicalities revolving around British governance in the Bahamas, the U.S. Coast Guard that had been dispatched wasn't allowed to get within a certain range of the Bahamas to conduct their search, like immediately. Hmm. I think it was somewhere like three miles of the Bahamas, which they were in the Bahamas at the time that it happened. So it's like, how effective is a Coast Guard search even going to be if you can't actually search, you know? So the Gulf Lion crew took Harvey to Nassau and helped him arrange a flight to Miami. From there, he would await further questioning that would take place two days later on Thursday, November 16th. When Lieutenant Ernest Murdoch arrived to his office in the Calumet building in Miami, he was met with an almost cheerful Julian Harvey. He was Mm. like in great spirits. Lieutenant Murdoch had conducted several investigations into accidents just like this one. And so as far as he was concerned, this was going to be a pretty routine ordeal. Like this, we've Mm -hmm. heard of things happening like this. It's tragic, but like. This is my job, and I do it all the time. So also present at the meeting was the owner of the Bluebell and Harvey's boss, Harold Pegg, as well as Harvey's attorney. And another person assigned to the investigation was not present, but would be part of the whole deal. His name was Coast Guard Captain Robert Barber. Hmm. So as they're all waiting for the formal questioning to begin, Harvey was kind of pushing Murdoch to give him all of the available details from the investigation that, like, he had up until that point. Yeah. Murdoch informed him that despite thorough searching, no survivors, no remains, and not even any debris from the Bluebell had been recovered up until that point, but the search wasn't over. Hmm. So I feel like that is a good indicator. Yeah. Like right out of the get-go that something's off. Right. Um, I didn't get into this in in my notes, but that was something that was strange to Murdoch. Mm-hmm. That like we didn't even find a, a, a shred of wood in the area where you said right. the boat went down. We didn't find anything. There was no, nothing that floated up, nothing at all. That's, that is really strange. Well, and obviously I'm going to read into this every single time mm-hmm. when somebody has like a, a cheerful attitude 48 hours after barely escaping death and losing not only people that, hired you to trusted you you, but also your spouse Mm -hmm. like i'm i would not be okay for a while you know right totally if ever so that's yeah that's really strange i'm i'm gonna read into that maybe that's unfair but it's not unfair lieutenant murdoch also read into that but he's like People handle these kinds of things differently. Sure. Like one thing I appreciate about Murdoch from everything that I read was that he really did try to be as diplomatic as possible. And he tried to like, whenever he would notice something weird, he would make a note of it. Mm -hmm. But then he would also come up with a a whole like array of explanations, possible explanations for it. He's cheerful, but like maybe this is his way of coping kind of thing, you know? So from there, Lieutenant Murdoch informed Harvey that the whole purpose of this interrogation was to determine the cause of the loss of the Bluebell and whether any laws or general negligence or misconduct had taken place in the process of the whole incident. Mm -hmm. So pretty standard. Okay. Harvey took in a deep, nervous breath and began his testimony. And so this is what happened according to Julian Harvey. Okay. He started his testimony by giving a detailed rundown of the voyage. He included information regarding the time they set sail, where they went, what stops they made, and all of that kind of stuff. He also mentioned that overall the weather was good, minus a few small rain squalls, but he had a conservative, safe plan in place to prepare for squalls to hit, and these methods would greatly reduce the chance of any damage to the ship or any injury to passengers. Yeah. Up until that final night, everything was going smoothly, but once that sudden squall hit, both masts splintered sending the main mast down through the boat into the cockpit where most of the passengers had been resting at that time. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. He also mentioned rigging in the ship that relied on high tension in order to keep everything running smoothly. But due to the squall, the tension had snapped, causing cables and rigging to go whipping violently around the ship and doing more damage to the wooden parts of the mast. Hmm. For the most part, nobody was hurt at this point except for Harvey's wife and Doc. Uh, both of them had suffered some cuts from wood debris. Hmm. Like So at this point, everything's fine. Just a damaged boat, really. Just a damaged boat. We can handle this. Which, this seems, and I don't want to cut you off for no, you're long, good. but th- that, just that, and I don't know much about boats, but that seems to be like the perfect storm of everything that could go wrong yeah. does, mm-hmm. that I'm kind of like a little bit suspicious, and maybe I shouldn't be because I don't know much about boats, like I just said. Right. But I'm just kind of like, eh, this seems... A little bit shady for all that to go wrong. Right. At the same time. Anyway. Right. You're not alone in that thought at all. Okay. So doing his best to get everyone off safely, Harvey focused on keeping everyone calm while he assessed the damage and formulated a game plan. Once he realized that the mast that had blasted below deck had several gas lines in the engine room, like Mm -hmm. that's where it was heading. He knew that fire was probably imminent. So he ran down and grabbed fire extinguishers. But tragically, a fire would blaze out of control faster than he could keep up with. And the ship was also quickly taking on water. Hmm. Before he knew it, flames were shooting out of the vents and across the ship itself, which the ship was painted with flammable paint, apparently. I don't know if it was just the deck or if it was the whole ship. Sure. But the paint that he... That had been used on that boat. They named it in the book and everything. It's a flammable paint. Don't know why anybody would want to use that for anything ever. Right. Uh, But they did. But they did. That's just (laughs) part of the deal. So Hmm. the whole boat is quickly becoming engulfed by flames. He kept the passengers calm and told them to stay put as he attempted to get them all to safety. From there, Harvey hobbled onto the deck where he released the dinghy and a small rubber life raft and he hopped off of the ship. He believed that the passengers saw him do that, and so many of them jumped off board. He assumed that they thought that maybe they just wanted to get away from Mm. the fire and that he'd be able to get the dinghy and raft turned around quickly enough so that he could go get them. Yeah. He quickly tied the raft to the dinghy, but it was so dark outside that he couldn't see any of the passengers when he first made a sweep for them. Mm -hmm. As he searched... The sounds of voices of the passengers faded completely until he was left with only the sounds of the wind, waves, and the rain. It was like total chaos. The boat starts going down. Mm-hmm. Everyone's screaming. And then all of a sudden, it's silent. It's just the Ooh. sounds of the ocean keeping him company. Yeah, that would be eerie. Finally, he saw one of the passengers, little Renee, but it was too late. He brought her body on board the dinghy and attempted artificial respiration, but to no avail. Once he realized that Renee could not be saved, he continued his search as the bluebell silently sunk completely beneath the waves. For two full hours, he searched, but no other survivors or bodies were recovered. He did his best to keep the dinghy from floating towards the Gulf Stream, and within 12 hours or so, the Gulf Lion oil rig had spotted him, and the whole thing came full circle. Mm -hmm. So, after Harvey wrapped up his version of events, Lieutenant Murdoch made mental note of some things that seemed off to him. Mm Mm-hmm. At multiple points, Harvey made sure to include the phrase by myself as he explained his actions Mm -hmm. a lot. Like he would say it a lot. Um, Interesting. Yeah. Murdoch wondered if he added that unnecessary phrase to cover up potential negligence or maybe to shield himself from the guilt of captaining a ship full of passengers that had died. Sure. Uh, But he did. He's like, okay, why does he keep saying I did this by myself, by myself? You know what I mean? Right. Yeah, it's it's kind of like he he's having to like is he self-justifying or is he trying to justify it, it to the lieutenant yeah. who's taking his statement? Like right. it like, just felt weird. It's kind of like an indirect request for mercy. Like I'm almost, yeah. I how what else was I supposed to do? I'm doing it all by myself. Right. You know? yeah. Right. So he also noted that if the mast had fallen and pierced the boat the way that Harvey said it did, that it would be a pretty anomalous thing. He'd been on ships where a mast broke and they typically would topple to the side of the boat or across the deck yeah. and not straight down like a javelin. Yeah. He also thought it was weird that none of the passengers thought to follow Harvey. Like, sure, he told them to stay put, but in the most dire circumstances, survival instinct would almost 
definitely be more potent than following a strange order that would keep them closer to danger yeah. that anyone would be comfortable with. Because he said, you guys wait here. Just everyone stay calm. Wait here. Yeah. I That one, that one, I, I understand both sides of that. Mm-hmm. Because if I'm, once again, someone who doesn't know much about boats, if I'm on a boat with a ship's captain that I'm trusting to protect me, mm-hmm. and he says the best thing to do is for you to stay here. Like I might question it, but I'm more than likely going to obey that because I'm like, well, I don't know what else to do. I might mm-hmm. ask, can I come help instead? <laughs> sure. But if it's like a, if that's what he would rec- recommend, like realistically. Yeah, I, I kind of go both ways on that. Cause yeah. in my mind, I'm like, someone's telling me to stay put and there's fire and I'm like up to my ankles and water in the open mm-hmm. ocean. I don't know if I'm going to listen to him. I yeah, mean, I'm going to maybe for a minute, Yeah, but like, yeah, but either way. It seems, yeah, it's still a little bit weird that he would have them do that in the first place, mm-hmm. but right, sure. Especially so, after trying to, <laughs> or I guess this was obviously before, but if he's all concerned about, I had to do all this by myself, like, man, bring anybody with you then to right. do anything. Right. Surely somebody can help you lower a boat. You right. Know? Right. But that's my opinion, I guess. So this one is another another thing Murdoch thought was kind of strange. They were only a few short miles away from the Great Stirrup K Lighthouse. If Harvey was an experienced sailor, which he claimed to be, he would not have just floated adrift. He would have navigated to the lighthouse, which was in the same direction that the wind was blowing. But for whatever reason, he navigated in the opposite direction from the lighthouse and into the wind. Hmm. And anyone manning the lighthouse would have seen some evidence of a fire and reported it. But there were no reports about a fire that night. Oh. So things were just not adding up. Yeah, that's definitely weird. Yeah. It's just so counter. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of another one of those things. We've talked about it on the show before. Where like maybe one or two of these things wouldn't be weird. Mm -hmm. But you start stacking them up and suddenly it's like, this is very off. Something's very off here. This is the only time in history this has ever happened. (laughs) Right. Which happens, but it mm-hmm. just, there's a, you have to really look into that. Mm-hmm. When Murdoch pressed him on these things, Harvey defended each of his choices. When asked why he didn't attempt a radio call or to use flares that he had on board the ship, Harvey told him that he just didn't think of it, which sent major mm. red flags in Murdoch's mind. This dude is a war hero, an experienced sailor and navigator, and he didn't think to use the radio or flares in an extreme crisis. Yeah, that's that doesn't add up. Right. The more he pushed and the more Harvey was either dismissive or aloof about his actions and inactions, Murdoch became more baffled by the story and more suspicious of Harvey. Mm-hmm. Despite several unbelievable and strange details in Harvey's story, investigators really didn't have anything else that they could do besides believe him. Mm. There were no other living witnesses and no way to prove in any concrete way that he was lying. Yeah. That is, until the conversation was interrupted... When Captain Barber came rushing into the room with some super exciting but startling news, another survivor had been recovered, which is nuts. It was literally like the scene of a movie. He's just like, man, like everybody's dead. And like, I don't know what's going on. Like, it was crazy. And then this guy comes busting in the room. We found a survivor. That is very crazy timing while they were having conversation. (laughs) Crazy, crazy timing. So Harvey's face turned a pale white as Barber shared this news. When all eyes turned to Harvey, he said, oh my God, well, that is wonderful. With a pained, forced smile. He quickly got up and scurried out of the room. So who was this lone survivor and where were they found? Yes, tell me. At the time that Harvey was beginning his testimony, the second officer of the Greek freighter called the Captain Theo. So this is a Greek name. Sorry. Uh, Nikolaus Spakadakis. So it's my very American pronunciation. (laughs) So this guy was on watch. I'm just going to call him Nick for myself. (laughs) That's understandable. So Captain Theo was heading from Belgium to Houston, Texas, and was traveling through the Northwest Providence Channel when something caught his eye. (laughs) In the distance was what appeared to have been a white cap. A white cap is the white top of a wave that can be an indicator of dangerous sailing conditions. But this white cap didn't seem to move or disappear. So Nick kept his eye on it. As the Captain Theo approached the white dot, the officers realized that it must have been a small fishing boat, and he could almost make out the small form of someone on board. 
He called the captain over to come take a look, and as they watched the object that they were approaching, they both agreed that a fishing dinghy wouldn't be that far out to sea. Like, Mm. that small of a boat wouldn't just be chilling by itself. Sure, yeah. So with the object in their sights, they were both stunned to discover that they were right. It was not a fishing dinghy. It was a small white life raft with an unlikely passenger. A small, blonde-haired, brown-eyed child using all of her strength to wave her frail, badly sunburnt arms at them. Wow. Yeah. This is going to get real heavy. Yeah. Just FYI. They approached the raft and snapped the now very famous photo of the little girl, which she would be dubbed by the media as the sea orphan. Wow. She was in terrible shape. She was laying in the raft in in pink caprice and a white blouse, her blonde hair almost glowing in the sunlight. Mm Mm-hmm. Her skin was horribly sunburned, and she had obvious signs of extremely serious dehydration. The men stopped the engine and very carefully rigged one of their own small life rafts overboard. They were rushing to get her on board, worrying for her safety and that the commotion in the water could attract the attentions of, like, the attention of sharks. Sure, yeah. Or other, like, other yeah. critters, yeah. you know. One crew member, um, a Vangelos Katsilas. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so bad with names. I'm sorry. So. He navigated the raft over to the child and lifted her into his arms. She immediately collapsed into him as the small raft was quickly and carefully brought back on board the Captain Theo by a rope that they had secured around her body. She was lifted up several stories onto the deck, her frail body dangling precariously as she was pulled upwards. Wow. As soon as she was lifted on deck, her legs buckled beneath her. So, a couple things. First... Mm -hmm. Oil rigs are huge or freighters, freighters and oil rigs are both huge. This boat is huge. And so when I say that they had to use a rope and pull her several stories up, I'm not exaggerating. Wow. Um, Two, we have to talk about the Captain Theo crew. Not only were these men incredibly brave heroes who did absolutely the right thing at every turn in this situation, but they were all so gentle and caring from the minute that they realized what was going on. Wow. When she collapsed on deck, I'll I'll probably cry reading this and I'll probably make you cry. So when she collapsed on deck, another crew member picked her up and carried her to a spare cabin where he gently laid her down. While some members offered her small sips of water and orange juice, others used soft sponges to gently rinse away the salt from her cracking skin. They dabbed her with cool, damp cloths and put Vaseline on her cracking lips. Mm -hmm. These were hardened Greek sailors. And they were all stunned silent and in tears as they all banded together to rescue and care for this little girl. None of them really said a word. They simply each did what they could do in the moment to care for this little child. Wow. It's like taking my breath away. Yeah. After some time of this, the captain went into the cabin and asked the child for her name, but she was nearly comatose. Her eyes were blank and staring off into the distance. He told the child that he wanted to call the Coast Guard, but he needed to know her name and what happened to her. He told her that if he could figure out her name, that he could tell her family that she was okay and they could all be reunited. The girl weakly shook her head, indicating to the captain that she was the sole survivor of some tragic incident at sea. He asked if she had relatives anywhere else, to which she softly rattled out yes in barely more than a whisper. She told the captain that her name was Terry Jo Duperalt from Green Bay, Wisconsin, and then she passed out. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Wow. Yeah. So the captain phoned the Coast Guard in Miami and said, quote, uh, I don't know if this was like a telegram, a radio message, mm-hmm. or exactly how, but this is the message that he left. Picked up blonde girl, brown eyes from small white raft, suffering exposure and shock. Name Terry Joe Duperalt was on Bluebell, end quote. Wow. Yes. The sinking of the Bluebell and the rescue of Julian Harvey was on the news, and the men aboard the Captain Theo knew about it, but they didn't expect to find any survivors. Because it had been four days since the ship went down with only Harvey ever being recovered. Mm-hmm. So this whole rescue was such a one in a million thing. Four days. Jeez. A helicopter was flown over the Captain Theo and a basket was lowered down. One of the crewmen, an unnamed burly man, carried Terry 
over to the basket and through tears, tenderly placed her small form into the basket, strapped her in and signaled for the helicopter to raise the basket. The crew watched in reverent silence as Terry Joe used the rest of her remaining energy to give them all a smile and the <laughs> tiniest wave, a gesture of sincere gratitude for her saviors. Wow. Each of the tough and weathered men waved back at her, stunned at what they'd just become a part of. It was later learned that the raft that she'd been found on was not visible from more than a mile away. And so the fact that it was spotted at all is an actual miracle. Wow. Terry Joe was rushed to Mercy Hospital in Miami. A medical crew headed up by Dr. Franklin Vernon was waiting for her in the landing area. And when she arrived, she was rushed into the emergency room for care. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile... Back at Lieutenant Murdoch's office, Harvey had just learned that a Bluebell survivor had been rescued at sea, and so he excused himself from the office to return to his hotel room at the Sandman Motel on Biscayne Boulevard in Miami. Murdoch and Barber looked at each other, both confused by his reaction, and so Murdoch ordered guards to be placed at Terry Joe's hospital room as a security measure since mm -hmm. she was the only living person who could either corroborate or discredit Harvey's version of events. Yeah. So... Right call. Yeah. Absolutely made the right call. For two full days, Terry Jo lay in a coma in her second floor hospital bed at Mercy Hospital. The medical staff was concerned about whether or not she would make it. Her heart rate was barely detectable, mm -hmm. but it was erratic and far too fast. Her body temperature was too high. Dehydration had caused massive strain on her kidney function. Yeah. She had been at sea with no food, no water, or coverage from the hot sun for four full days Jeez. all by herself. Oh. That's about as long as anybody can go without food or water at any age, right. let alone a small child. Yeah. She was in constant danger of massive organ failure, pneumonia, or heart fibrillation as she laid there, but her doctors and nurses remained optimistic that this brave little person would pull through. Finally, on day two, she woke up. She couldn't speak yet, but she was able to eat a little bit, and she continued receiving medicine and fluids through her IVs. By Sunday, November 19th, she was eating and smiling and acting like any other child. Hmm. So I don't think that I actually ended up making note of this, but Terry and her doctor were very close. He kind of seemed like the only person that she really trusted. Yeah. And one thing that he would make note of, which I feel like is important for us to know, is that she, from this point forward, is either so shockingly brave and stoic when mm -hmm. she's sharing her story or she is very, very childlike and youthful as if nothing happened. Yeah. And her doctor offered the explanation that like, this kid is really tough, but you have to know that she's a little kid who experienced extreme trauma. Yeah. And so like, don't, not like don't be fooled. Like she wasn't trying to trick anybody, yeah. but like keep that in mind. Right. Was kind of what he was right. getting at with investigators. Right. Like remember that she's an 11 year old little girl. Right. She's not able to fully process the emotional weight of it. Right. And so some, in, in some cases she can't, I think about that with our own kids mm -hmm. who re retell certain stories that I'm like, why are you telling it like this? But I'm like, well, because they don't understand that this is either upsetting or traumatic or frustrating. Sure. They just know it's the thing that happened. Right. And so for her, though, I'm sure she's well aware that like people aren't there mm -hmm. at the same time, like it. It doesn't seem real. Right. And she doesn't have the life experience to actually like kind of wrestle with that. Sure. Just, she's just kind of going through it right. at this point. So that makes sense for an 11 year old to right. go back and forth and how they retell a certain story. I just appreciate Dr. Vernon for that a lot because yeah. he, he could have not said anything, Yeah, but he made sure anytime in the future that adults were wanting to talk to her about what happened that he was advocating for her yeah. as his patient and just as a human. Yeah. And so I wanted to make sure that we talked about that for that a second. Is really, that is really important to point out. Anytime yeah. that, a, that a child is a witness to something, mm -hmm. has testimony, their their tone, their manner of sharing it, it's not like a 35-year-old mm -hmm. adult. It's just not. It's not even close to the same. Mm -hmm. And so being aware of that is important. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. So her family in Green Bay were notified of what had happened and that she was in recovery. So her aunt and uncle, Fred and Dottie Duperall, rushed down to Miami. 
Finally, the Coast Guard was able to come in and get a statement from Terry Joe, who told a wildly different story than Harvey had. Oh, here we go. When the Coast Guard arrived, Terry Joe laid propped up on her bed, surrounded by flowers and a doll sent to her by crew members of the Captain Theo, <laughs> who learned that her favorite doll had been lost when the bluebell sank, so they sent her a new one. Oh my gosh. I love them that all. That is amazing. I love them so much. Those are heroes. They are. She smiled brightly at the officers, demonstrating to everyone just how brave and strong she was, leaving lumps in the throats of the officers waiting for her to tell them what had happened. She was instructed to do her best to tell the story into the microphone, and then she began. She told the officers, led by Captain Barber, that their family's trip around the Bahamas was fun and full of magic until that final night. Around 9 p.m. on the night of the incident, Terry Jo had gone to the bottom level cabin and went to sleep. On that night, her sister Renee stayed up on deck with everyone else, though she normally slept down in the cabin with Terry Jo. Suddenly, Terry Jo was awakened from her sleep by the distinct sound of screaming. It was her brother screaming, help, daddy, help, over and over. She also heard the sounds of running and stomping feet above her. Stunned still, she listened from her bed until it was silent once again. She got out of bed and crept into the main cabin and was met with pools of blood and the bodies of her mother and brother dead on the floor. From that instant, Terry instinctively knew that her life as she knew it was over, but she kept moving. She crept up the stairs that led to the deck and poked her little head out and took a look around. There was clearly more blood across the deck. The night casting darkness over the ship that had carried her and her family as they, you know, created joyful memories in the days leading up to that moment. Mm-hmm. It's now being kind of cast yeah. into a Ugh. horrible shadow. When suddenly Harvey came rushing at her. She asked him what had happened and he screamed at her to get back down to the cabin. So terrified, Terry Joe ran back below deck and curled up in her bed, avoiding looking at the bodies of her mother and brother as she passed them. Mm-hmm. Within minutes, she realized that the ship was filling with water, and as she looked around in the darkness, she could make out the form of Harvey in the doorway who stood motionless, staring at her, holding what Terry Joe believed to be a rifle in his hands. Oh, Horrifying. Oh my gosh. If you can't get that imagery in your head, just go with me for a second. Uh, I, I, I got it, but I'll go Horrifying. with you. Horrifying. Yeah. I didn't even need to go with me for a second, but. <laughs> yeah, that's like, that's straight out of a horror movie. Mm-hmm. So Terry Joe held her breath in terror, the only sound accompanying her being the sound of her heart as it pounded wildly in her chest, when out of nowhere, Harvey turned around and climbed the stairs again. She could hear some odd pounding noises above her, and with the water steadily flowing into the boat, she knew she had no choice but to go back on deck. She waded through the water, desperately afraid that the bodies of her loved ones would bump against her as she made her way to the stairs. Aww. She watched as the captain released the dinghy and lifeboat into the sea, and she asked him if the boat was sinking. So almost as if he was annoyed by the question, he told her yes, and he told her to hold the line connected to the dinghy. Terry Joe lost her grip of the line, sending it into the sea, and so Harvey dove in and climbed into the dinghy. So this kid is so impressive. Hmm. She kept a remarkably clear head as she watched Harvey making his escape. When she remembered that there was a small white raft that she saw hanging in the main cabin. So she ran back below deck and untied it and climbed on just as the deck began sinking under the waves. So she's in like knee deep water, like barely making it. But she had the wherewithal to remember the boat, figure out how to untie it and climb in. Oh, my gosh. She huddled onto her raft and waited, hoping silently that someone would find her and get her to true safety. As she told her story, Terry Joe remained calm and stoic, despite the horror of her ordeal. She informed officers that the mast was intact at the time of the boat sinking, and there was no fire at any time, but she did pick up the strong smell of oil. Hmm. She also recalled that she was unsure of how her mother and brother got blood on them, and she didn't know what had happened to Mrs. Harvey, her father, or little Renee. So they continued to question her carefully about that night, aware that she was still not out of the woods Mm health-wise. And so when it all became too stressful, the conversation ended for a time. So the bomb had been dropped. Yeah. Harvey had lied. There had been at least two murders on the Bluebell, and none of this was any kind of accident. Wow. 
According to additional testimony given by Terry Joe, the next several days alone at sea were just as much of a nightmare as that final night on the Bluebell. With no way to escape the heat except for the water underneath her, Mm -hmm. providing her with a chance to cool down a tiny bit, she floated through the day, praying to God for her protection and for her father and sister to be okay. Mercifully, Mm -hmm. she spent much of her time in shock, not fully able to grasp the gravity of her experience since late Saturday night. Or Sunday night, excuse me. Yeah. Soon, parrotfish began to bite at her from underneath the raft, puncturing small holes in the mesh netting that she rested in, also leaving small bite marks on her bottom and legs. Oh. Yeah, because like the it was one of those things that like the middle is mesh. Yeah. And so they were yeah. picking at her. Right. Which would hurt. That would hurt. Within one day, the early effects of exposure began setting in, causing her lips and skin to tighten and crack, and eventually causing her to suffer hallucinations. Oh, man. Every breath and swallow became increasingly painful for her. She saw ghostly shapes in the water, and as they came into full view, she realized that she was being followed by a small pod of dolphins, which brought her a sense of comfort and relief from the stark aloneness Mm -hmm. that she felt as she continued drifting aimlessly in the water. At night, the fear she felt in the cover of night would be briefly broken by the stunningly vast and beautiful night sky with miles of bright stars stretching for Mm -hmm. in every direction, like forever in every direction. That would be an amazing view to see, Mm -hmm. but uh, this is not the instance that you would like to see it in. So. It seems like she was trying to, like a like a very wise person. Yeah, she was trying to hold on to anything that yeah. that made her feel any level of comfort, or even just not fear. Yeah, and cling to that. I want to think about that. I want to yeah. think about the stars. That's really cool. that kind of thing. Hmm. With the torture of the sun beating down on her, no food and no water, Terry Joe did all she could to preserve her energy and to keep up her spirits hoping beyond hope that this wouldn't be how she'd die, an orphan at sea. Hmm. In her dreams, she saw her father happily sipping a glass of red wine and calling out to her saying, come on, Terry Joe, we're leaving. This cycle repeated until the fourth day arrived. She was in dire condition physically, mentally, and emotionally when suddenly, from her perspective, something like a great wall came into view the Captain Theo, Mm, mm -hmm. and her rescuers whisked her to safety from her desperate, lonely voyage at sea. She spent the next chunk of time trying to savor the little things. Mm -hmm. So Thanksgiving dinner in her hospital bed was provided by her aunt and uncle. Uh, She had happy memories of exploring the beach, and she never asked any questions about that night or about the fate of her parents or siblings. Wow. As she's like still in the hospital. Yeah, yeah. Coast Guard officials continued their investigation, coming into Terry Joe's room whenever they needed her help piecing together a timeline of events, and she did her best to aid in the investigation and to help them prove that Harvey's story was a lie and that he was the one who caused the whole incident to go down the way that it did. Mm-hmm. The investigators were able to crack the code on what happened, despite the fact that Harvey took himself out of the investigation entirely. Mm. So I'm going to skip backwards a bit to Friday, November 17th. Sure. Okay. On the morning of that day, a maid at the Sandman Motel was making her cleaning rounds when she arrived to room 17, occupied by Julian Harvey. Mm -hmm. She knocked on the door but received no answer, and so she entered the room. There was an odd smell, but she'd kind of become accustomed to the many unnerving scents that were typical of a sealed-off motel room. (laughs) And so she just started cleaning. She noticed that the blankets and sheets on the twin bed had been ruffled around Mm -hmm. and that there appeared to have been blood on one of the sheets. Oh, my gosh. She made her way to the attached bathroom, and when she attempted to open the door, something heavy was blocking the way. Content warning. I think you all know Mm -hmm. where I'm going with this. I'm going to be mentioning the completion of suicide as well as discussing contents of a suicide note and method of suicide. And so if any of those things are triggering to you, you can skip ahead several minutes. Or we'll Mm -hmm. be happy to have you back next week. Yeah. So when the maid attempted to open the blocked door to the bathroom, that smell hit her like a wave. And she immediately realized that it was the smell of human blood. She screamed in revulsion, which prompted the motel manager to run to her. And he, too, couldn't get the bathroom door open. So he quickly called police. Yeah. There on the bathroom floor, a young officer discovered the blood-soaked body It was Julian Harvey staring wide-eyed from beyond the grave, dead from fatal slash wounds on his thighs, wrists, forearms, and even on both sides of his neck. 
Jeez. The scene itself was so gory that even experienced officers were taken aback at the frenzy of slashes that were so deep that they could see down into his muscles and tendons where he had cut himself. Goodness. It would later be referred to as unspeakably violent, not like the wounds of a typical suicide. Jeez. Okay. Yes. And Mm. I, I don't like mentioning like when we're talking about suicide, I don't like going into detail on that, but I feel like this one was so uh, anomalous in that way that they, the fact that officers were affected by it, who had seen that kind of thing before felt like it was worth mentioning. So he'd left a note talking about how he couldn't stand the pressure anymore. Quote, I'm a nervous wreck and just can't continue. I'm going out now. I guess I either don't like life or don't know what to do with it. End quote. He wrote about the love that he had for his young son, as well as his wishes to be buried at sea. He sealed the note in an envelope addressed to an old military friend of his and completed the deed on that day, never truly having to face the consequences of his own actions. Wow. After investigators looked more into his background, it was learned that the Bluebell was not the first ship captained by Julian Harvey to go down, nor was it the first bizarre, scare quotes, accident that he had a direct connection to. So we got to talk a little bit more about Julian Harvey. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Let's go. Okay. So his life kind of sounds made up, like something out of a movie. He was the child of a Broadway chorus girl. His biological father left when he was a baby, but his mother got remarried to a vaudeville impresario, which is basically someone who would be in charge of stage production Mm -hmm. and management. This guy was loaded rich, and he indulged Julian's every wish and desire, which in turn made him grow accustomed to a life of luxury, even buying him his own sailboat by the age of 10. Jeez. Wow. Okay. Very rich. Very, very rich. By the time the Great Depression hit, the relationship between his mother and stepfather broke up and Julian was sent to live with his wealthy aunt and uncle who continued to provide a glamorous lifestyle for him, even through the Depression. Jeez. In his younger years, he was kind of small and scrawny, so he dedicated himself to bodybuilding, growing in strength and becoming model handsome as a young adult. Hmm. He spent some time modeling and pursuing the finer things in life, and it was around this time that he developed what one journalist would later call an affinity for accidents. Hmm. First, his Model A Ford convertible was in a weird accident while he and his friend were inside. The wheel apparently came loose and flew off, or a wheel, I guess, but both men managed to escape harm by jumping out just before the car rolled over. He joined the Air Corps in 1941 and was known for his courage in flight. He would be part of over 30 missions during that time, even Mm -hmm. surviving two crash landings. He was decorated with countless medals of various honors and had become a major ladies man, which I hate that phrase, but like that's exactly what he was. That's what he was described as. He was attractive, successful, and Mm -hmm. brave, and the women that he wanted, he got. Yeah. But despite being married multiple times, none of his marriages would be successful. Yeah. In the 1940s, while driving home from the movies with his third wife, Joanne, and his mother-in-law, they were crossing a bridge over a bayou when suddenly the car went off the bridge and into the water. Both women died in the accident due to drowning, but Harvey managed to escape without so much as a scratch. What? Mm Mm-hmm. Despite the oddities in his story regarding the accident, he was cleared of any suspicions and was awarded a hefty life insurance policy that he'd taken out on Joanne. One of the investigators would say of Harvey, quote, that underneath his veneer of charm and sophistication was an amoral man with no real empathy for others, a man who could be dangerous, Mm. end quote, which accurate. Yes. In the early 1950s, he was remarried again, this time to a woman named Georgiana. By that point, he'd been part of over 100 combat missions and had been discharged from the military. He purchased himself a sailboat named the Torbatross and fulfilled his dream of becoming a sailor on his own ship. So all of these war missions and his war hero kind of status, that's all legit. That all happened? That all happened. I'm curious if some of the combat missions he was in, particularly ones involving crash landings, Mm -hmm. him saving the day at the last minute that awarded him a medal, if all of those things were concocted and not just playing out naturally. Yeah. Like, 
they they are recorded as events that definitely happened. Yes. The question is whether or not they were premeditated events right. where he could make himself the hero or not. Totally. Okay. That's, totally. That's a that's what I was curious is like if these things are entirely fabricated, that's one thing. For them to be true stories, but created by him is right. another much scarier thing. Very scary. So, okay. Wow. So Yes, yeah, so he purchased the sailboat. Mm-hmm. He was out on the water when the Torbatross hit some World War I wreckage in the Chesapeake Bay, causing the boat to sink. Interestingly, witnesses to this incident noted that Harvey had circled the submerged but incredibly well-marked wreckage two full times before his boat crashed into it and sank. And wouldn't you know it, Harvey was able to cash in on a $14,258 life insurance policy. What? or insurance policy, which would be worth nearly $160,000 today. Jeez. Oh my gosh. That's a People crazy saw him, amount of money. So yeah. from what I understand in the Chesapeake Bay, there's this old uh, World War II, World War I wreckage. Mm-hmm. It's marked. You can see it. Yeah. There's no way that he accidentally hit it. And people saw him circling it, yeah. which takes a minute. Yeah. He was twice. looking for the opportunity. Yes, he was. Wow. Oh. So he used that money to buy another boat while he was deep in the throes of a divorce his soon-to-be ex-wife citing extreme mental cruelty as her reasoning for pursuing divorce. Mm. So he's a jerk on top of being unhinged. So the next boat that he bought, the Valiant, also mysteriously set on fire and sank in 1958, and he was awarded another settlement. This time he was awarded $40,000, which is equivalent to $422,000 today. Wow. Crazy. Okay, so this guy is a master of... Insurance fraud is what's going yes. on here. Yes. Wow. He spent the next several oh. years working as a contract sailor for charter parties off the Florida coast. Mary Dene, his sixth wife and the woman who had joined him and the Duperalts on board the Bluebell in 1961, also had a life insurance policy worth $20,000 that Harvey had taken out on her, I think without her knowledge, at the oh. time the Bluebell went down. Leading investigators oh. to believe that this whole incident on the night of the Bluebell mm-hmm. massacre was literally because he wanted to cash in on his wife's insurance policy. No. Money. All of that. For money. For money. And then he didn't even end up getting it anyways right. because he got caught. Right. Julian Harvey was a crafty monster, but what he didn't count on was anyone, let alone an 11-year-old girl, to survive and beat him at his own game. Mm -hmm. Her courage and honesty, far more powerful than any scam he could come up with. So this makes me mad. I didn't write this down either because I was mad about it, but it is important. He got a sea burial. He got an honorable, he got what he wanted. wanted. I don't think that he deserved a sea burial. I don't think, and there was pomp and circumstance to it. Right. I I don't know if it's because of his military affiliation or whatever. Probably. His hero status. Mm -hmm. He shouldn't have gotten it. Right. That bothered me a lot, but they gave it to him. Mm. By the end of November of 1961, Terry Jo had recovered to the point that she was discharged from the hospital and into the care of her aunt and uncle, Fred and Dottie. The new family quickly returned home to Green Bay, Wisconsin, and in an attempt to shield Terry Joe from the depth of wickedness and heartache of her ordeal, they effectively built a wall around her. Hmm. So I kind of brought this up earlier, but that photo taken by the crew members on the Captain Theo became very famous around the whole world. Um, And quickly, the story of the Bluebell Massacre and Terry Joe's remarkable survival was an international news sensation. Sure. Oh, Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. But as was and is sadly common, her aunt and uncle decided that the best way to deal with all of it was to try and forget it. (sighs) Which makes me, I understand the heart behind that. Truly, I do. Hmm. But they didn't acknowledge it at all. That's... She lost her whole family. Right. And survived an unsurvivable ordeal. Right. I I get it, but I'm also like, guys... There was just not a value, I guess, at that time in the 60s of receiving mental health care the way that we prioritize it today. Right. I mean, that was 60 years ago. Yeah. So I get it. I can I can rationalize it, but it still makes me really sad that she didn't have that earlier. Yeah. To pretend like it never happened sounds crazy to me. Mm hmm. 
Terry Jo was silent about her story for a full 20 years, and eventually she went on to co-author a book about her story titled Alone, Orphaned on the Ocean in 2010 with Dr. Richard Logan, where every last excruciating detail, known detail, I suppose, of the murders, the investigation, and the aftermath were laid out in full. Mm Mm-hmm. In the years after her accident and with the burial of her trauma, Terry Jo suffered tremendously as she attempted to navigate her grief and pain. In 1999, she underwent a psychological evaluation where she was able to recall the night, like the events of the night in mm. full detail, down to the appearance of her brother's pajamas, oh, a wow. bloody knife on the floor, and even the smell of oil in the air. Hmm. Over the years, she has made constant efforts to remember the beautiful things about her parents and siblings, like her mother's ability and love for cultivating a beautiful home, her Mm. father's dedication to his family and love for adventure, her siblings in their sweet innocence that was taken from them far too soon. She would go on to have a solid career that she would retire from with her husband, who she married in 1995. She would have six children and would slowly but surely begin to share her story and courage with the world. Her daughter, Blair, was asked in a 1999 interview, what do you think of your mom? To which she responded, my mom? She's my hero. The people closest to Terry have all talked about how much wisdom and love she has shared with them. And in that way, that part of her that had her world flipped upside down and her family stolen from her remained true. Mm. And her bravery and fight to survive and eventually thrive still leaves a mark on everybody who knows her. Wow. So for today's story, I read a lot of really great articles, but I got most of my information from Alone, Orphaned on the Ocean, which I'll be linking in the show notes. In the afterforward that Terry wrote, she closed with this. What I want to stress to all who read this book is never give up, always have hope, and try to look on the bright side of things. Be positive, be trusting, and try to go with the flow. Have compassion, give of yourself to those in need, and be loving and kind. I believe that what you give comes back to you. And that's what I have for you today. Wow. Oh my goodness. That is a crazy story. Mm-hmm. Very and heavy. Super heavy. I'm like, it, it's unfortunate that we don't know exactly what happened. Mm-hmm. Um, so the the police, they were not able to really put together a great, story how how does that kind of wrap up so I know it doesn't wrap up but, it is actually kind yeah. of interesting because uh a lot of people over the years have wondered if he kind of wanted to get caught like subconsciously being able to recall the bloody knife years mm-hmm. later all of that kind of stuff and all the amount of blood and everything yeah from w- what i understand everybody was stabbed wow but yeah for the most part it was they assumed and they made inferences based on the l- very limited evidence and yeah. Terry Joe's testimony. Yeah. If that makes sense. It sounds like most of what they pieced together was Terry Joe's testimony because they mm-hmm. they didn't find it doesn't yeah. sound like they ever found the boat. No, I don't think they did. Which is like really, really I could have missed that. I'm always the first person to say I could have missed that detail. Right. But yeah. You did read the whole book in like a day and a half. So I, I did. did. <laughs> I power read it. Yeah. Um, but wow, that's it's it's really kind of eye opening to the fact that only one person really knows what's hap- what happened, mm-hmm. and he decided to run away from it. Mm-hmm. Essentially, yeah. <sighs> Terry Joe's amazing, though. She they, is amazing. This is a very well documented through photograph and news story mm-hmm. cases. Um, I want to share as many of them as I'm able to on the social medias because she's just incredible. Yeah. Like, and I mean, they got photos of the men on the Captain Theo leading her, like helping her into the thing for the helicopter ride. Like they got pictures of them holding her, like, and moving to the next thing. They documented it well. Right. As they're supposed to. They did a great job. That's really cool. Those guys are my heroes. Mm -hmm. Those guys are absolute heroes. And it's amazing because half of, more than half of them aren't even named, but they (sighs) all stepped in and did what they could do in that moment. And I would like to believe that all of us, I would like to believe that all of us would respond the same in a mm-hmm. crisis like that. But we've seen and read and watched enough true crime yeah. that that's not the case. Everybody yeah. pooches it. These mm-hmm. guys did not, they did a, they did a phenomenal job. And I feel yeah. like their quick action and the steps that they took 
contributed to her recovery. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. So, yeah. Wow. Well, in the memories of her family, the, I, I, it sounds like she's, she did her, she did what she needed to do to retell the story that needed to be told. Mm -hmm. And then after that, she did what she needed to do to remember all of the beautiful and important things mm -hmm. about her family. Yeah. She named one of her children, Brian. Oh, after her brother. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's really sweet. Oh. Yeah. It's really wow. sweet. Well, everybody, thank you so much for listening to the unusual, unsettling, unsavory story today. Um, if you aren't already, please make sure that you are subscribed to this podcast on your favorite listening platform and leave a five-star review on that platform as well. Those reviews help other people find this podcast that listen to other types of podcasts like this one. You can also follow us on social media at this one is a doozy on Instagram and TikTok. You can also follow us on Facebook, this one's a doozy podcast. And you can connect with us more directly over on Patreon, like we mentioned at the beginning of the episode. My love, why don't you tell them a little bit about Patreon? Yes. Yeah, so you can follow the link in our Instagram bio and our Facebook about section, or you can go to patreon.com slash doozypod on the website or app. And for $5 a month, you'll get access to ad-free content as well as exclusive bonus episodes that only our patrons get access mm -hmm. to, as well as access to polls where you can help us pick things like episode topics and like we mentioned at the top of the episode, which organization we'll be giving to each month. The uh, May giving poll will be opening mm -hmm. soon. So if you want to get in on that, we would love to have you there. And yeah. All right. Well, with that, we will see you next week for another doozy. Thank you. Bye. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low-net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun... Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. -ba -ba.